So the last temptation of Christ is roughly 500 pages long. And prevalent in the book is really a lot of, well, I guess fictional, very creative uh, accounts of who was who, what their occupations were. Um, specifically, I began to peruse this book, which I've read three times now in, over the course of many years. Um, and I realized that it basically personifies many of the disciples, but the most powerful disciple mentioned and described is truly Judas. Judas's occupation was that he was a blacksmith. He not only made tools, but made weapons. And several of the disciples with him were basically a band of, uh, of kind of rebellious uh, people who kind of a gang of people who were brought together uh, and went around searching for the Messiah. Hard to tell from the very beginnings what their goal is in finding him. But it is quite amazing the way that it is depicted. Uh, Judas is so big and strong, he's, he's like a Goliath-type character. Uh, to go a little further into this, I, I, I wanted to just read excerpts, but I've decided to just read the first chapter of this book because I really feel like uh, if there's anything that's going to entice any of you brothers and sisters into looking further into this and reading it, I know um, we have limited time and so many media by which we absorb information about our faith, about God, about Jesus. Here we go, chapter 1. A cool, heavenly breeze took possession of him. Above, the blossoming skies had opened into a thick tangle of stars. Below on the ground, stones were streaming still a fire from the great heat of the day. Heaven and earth were peaceful and sweet, filled with the deep silence of ageless night voices, more silent than silence itself. It was dark, probably midnight. God's eyes, the sun and the moon, were closed and sleeping, and the young man, his mind carried away by the gentle breeze, meditated happily. But as he thought, what solitude, what paradise, Suddenly, the wind changed and thickened. It was no longer a heavenly breeze, but the reek of heavy, greasy breaths, as though in some overgrown thicket or damp, luxuriant orchard below him, a gasping animal or a village was struggling in vain to sleep. The air had become dense, restless. The tepid breaths of men, animals and elves, rose and mixed with sharp odor from sour human sweat, bread freshly removed from the oven, and the laurel oil used by the women to anoint their hair. You sniffed. You sensed, you divined, but saw nothing. Little by your little, your eyes became accustomed to the darkness as you were able to distinguish a stern 
straight trunked cypress, darker than night itself, a clump of date palms grouped like a fountain and rustling in the wind, sparsely leaved olive trees, which shone silver in the blackness. And there on a green spot of land, you saw wretched cottages thrown down in groups, now singly constructed of night, mud and brick, and smeared all over with whitewash. You realized from the smell and filth that human forms, some covered with white sheets, others uncovered, were sleeping on the rooftops. The silence had fled. The blissful, uninhabited night filled with anguish. Human hands and feet twisted and turned, unable to find repose. Some human hearts sighed, despairing. Obstinate cries from hundreds of mouths fought in this mute, God-trodden chaos to unite, toiled to find expression for what they longed to say, but they could not. And the cries scattered and were lost in disjointed ravings. Suddenly there was a shrill, heart-rending scream from the highest rooftop. In the center of the village, a human breast was tearing itself in two. God of Israel, God of Israel, Adonai, how long? It was not a man. It was the whole village dreaming and shouting together. The whole soil of Israel with the bones of its dead and the roots of its trees. The soil of Israel in labor, unable to give birth and screaming. After a long silence, the cry suddenly tore the air again from earth to heaven. But now with even more anger and grievance. How long, how long the village dogs awoke and begun to, began to bark. And on the flat mud roofs, the frightened women thrust their heads under the armpits of their husbands. The youth was dreaming. He heard the shout in, in his sleep and stirred. The dream took fright, began to flee. The mountain rarefied and its insides appeared. It was not made of a rock, but of sleep and dizziness. The group of huge wild men were stomping furiously up to up it with giant strides, all mustaches, beards, eyebrows, and great long hands. They rarefied also, lengthened, widened, were completely transformed and then plucked into tiny threads like clouds scattered by a strong wind. A little more, and they would have disappeared from the sleeper's mind. But before this could happen, his heavy his head grew heavy and he fell once more into a deep sleep. The mountain thickened again into the rock. And the clouds solidified into flesh and bone. He heard someone panting. The hurried steps, the red beard, reappeared at the mountain's peak. His shirt was open. He was barefooted, red-faced, sweating. His numerous gasping followers were behind him. Still hidden among the rough stones of the mountain, above the dome of heaven, once again formed a well-built roof. But now there was a single star, large like a mouthful of fire, hanging in the east. Day was breaking. The young man lay stretched on his bed of wood shavings, breathing deeply, resting after the hard work of the day. His eyelids flew up for an instant as though struck by the morning star, but he did not awake. The dream had again skillfully wrapped itself around him. 
He dreamed that the red beard stopped. Sweat streamed from his armpits, legs, and narrow, deeply wrinkled forehead, steaming at the mouth from exertion and anger. He started to swear, but restrained himself, swallowed the curse, and merely grumbled dejectively. How long, Hadanai? How long? But his rage did not abate. He turned around. Fast as lightning, the long march unrolled itself within him. Mountains sank away. Men vanished. And the dream was wrenched into a new locale. And the sleeper saw the land of Canaan unfold above him. On the low cane lath ceiling of his house, the land of Canaan, like embroidered air, many-colored, rich, ornamented, and trembling. To the south, the quivering desert of Edumia shifted like the back of a leopard. Farther on, the Dead Sea, thick and poisonous, drowned and drank the light. Beyond, this stood inhuman Jerusalem, moated on every side by the commandments of Jehovah, Blood from God's victims, from lambs and prophets, ran down its cobbled streets. Next came Samaria, dirty, trodden by idolaters, with a, with a well in the center and a rouged and powdered woman, draw, women, woman drawing near. And finally, at the extreme north, Galilee, sunny, modest, verdant. And flowing from one end of the dream, to the other was the River Jordan, God's royal artery, which passes by sandy wastes and rich orchards. John the Baptist and Samarian heretics, prostitutes and the fishermen of Genesaret, water, watering them all indifferently. The young man exulted in his sleep to see the holy water and soil. He stretched forth his hand to touch them. But the promised land made up of dew, wind, and age-old human desires, and the illuminated like a rose by the dawn, suddenly flickered in the fluffy darkness and was snuffed out. And is, as it vanished, he heard curses and bellowing voices and saw the numerous band of men reappear from behind the sharp rocks and the prickly pears, but completely changed now and unrecognizable. How he crumpled and shriveled the giants had become. How stunted. They were panting, dwarfs, imps gasping for breath, and their beards dragged along the ground. Each carried a strange impediment of torture. Some held bloody leather belts studded with iron. Some clasped knives and ox goads. Some thick, wide-headed nails. Three midgets, whose behinds nearly scraped the ground, carried a massive, unwieldy cross. And last of all came the vilest of the lot, the cross-eyed pygmy holding a crown of thorns. The red beard leaned over, gazed at them and shook his large boned head with disdain. The sleeper heard his thoughts. They don't believe. That's why they've degenerated. That's why I am being tormented. They don't believe me. He extended his immense hairy hand. Look! He said, pointing to the plain below, which was drowned in morning hoarfrost. We don't see anything, Captain. It's dark. You don't see anything. Why? Why then don't you believe? We do, Captain. 
We do. That's why we follow you. But we don't see anything. Look again. Lowering his hand like a sword, he pierced the hoarfrost and uncovered the plain beneath. A blue lake was awakening. It smiled and glittered as it pushed aside its blanket of frost, great nestfuls of eggs, villages, and hamlets. Gleamed brilliantly white under the date palms all around its freshly pebbly shores and in the middle of the fields of grain. He's there, said the leader, pointing to a large village surrounded by green meadows. The three windmills which overlooked it had opened their wings in the early dawn and were turning. Terror suddenly poured over the sleeper's dark, wheat-complexioned face. The dream had settled on his eyelids and was brooding there, brushing his hand over his eyes to be rid of it. He tried as hard as he could to wake up. It's a dream, he thought. I must awake and save myself. But the tiny men revolved around him obstinately and did not wish to leave. The savage face red beer was now speaking to him, shaking his finger menacingly at the large village in the plain below. He's there. He lives there in hiding barefooted, dressed in rags, playing the carpenter, pretending he is not the one. He wants to save himself, but how can he escape us? God's eyes have seen him. After him, lads! He raised his foot and got on his mark, but the dwarves clung to his arms and legs. He lowered his foot again. There are many people dressed in rags, Captain. Many who go barefooted. Many carpenters. Give us a clue who he is, what he looks like, and where he lives, so that we'll be able to recognize him. Otherwise, we're not budging. You'd better know that, Captain. We're not budging. We're tired out. I shall hug him to my bosom and kiss him. This will be your clue. Forward now. Run, but quiet. Don't shout. Right now he's sleeping. Take care he doesn't wake up and escape us. In God's name, lads, after him. After him, Captain, shouted the dwarves in unison, and they raised their big feet, ready to start. But one of them, the skinny cross-eyed hunchback, who held the crown of thorns, clutched the prickly shrub and resisted. I'm not going anywhere, he screamed. I'm fed up. How many nights have we been hunting him? How many countries and villages have we tramped through? Count. In the desert of Edomia, we searched the monasteries and of the Essenes, one after the other. We went through Bethany, where we practically murdered poor Lazarus to no avail. We reached the Jordan, but the Baptist sent us away, saying, I'm not the one you seek, so be off with you. We left and entered Jerusalem, searched the temple, the palaces, palaces of Annas and Cephas, the cottages of the scribes and Pharisees. No one, no one but scoundrels, liars, robbers, prostitutes, murderers. We left again. We raced through Samaria, the excommunicate, and reached Galilee. In one lump, we took to Magdala, Cana, Capernaum, Bethsaida. From hut to hut, cake to cake, we searched for the most virtuous, most God-fearing. Every time we found him, we cried, You're the one! Why are you hiding? Arise and save Israel! 
But as soon as he saw the tools we carried, his blood red and cold, he kicked, stamped, shrieked, it's not me, not me, and threw himself into a life of wine, gambling, and women in order to save himself. He became drunk. He blasphemed. He whored. Just to make us see he was a sinner and not the one we sought. I'm sorry, Captain, but we'll meet up with the same thing here. We're chasing him in vain. We won't find him. He has still not been born. The red beard grabbed him by the nape of the neck and held him dangling in the air for a long moment. Doubting Thomas, he said, laughing. Doubting Thomas, I like you. He turned to the others. He is the ox goad. We the laboring beast. Let him prick us. Let him prick us so that we may never find peace. Hairless Thomas screeched with pain. The red beard set him down on the ground. Laughing again, he swept his eyes over the heterogeneous company. Genus. And many, how many are we, he asked. Twelve. One from each of the tribes of Israel's Devils, angels, imps, dwarfs, all the births and abortions of God. Take your pick. He was in a good mood. His round, hawk-like eyes flashed. Stretching out his great hand, he began to grip the companions angrily, tenderly. By the shoulder, one by one, he held them dangling in the air while he examined them from top to bottom, laughing. As soon as he released one, he grabbed another. Hello, skin flint, venom nose, prophet mad, immortal son of Abraham, and you, daredevil, chatterbox, gobble jaws, and you, pious milk toast, you don't murder, steal, or commit adultery because you are afraid. All your virtues are daughters of fear. And you, simple donkey, that they break you with beating. You carry on. You carry on despite hunger, thirst, cold, and the whip. Laborious, careless of your self-respect. You lick the bottom of the saucepan. All your virtues are daughters of poverty. And you, sly fox, you stand outside the den of the lion, the den of Jehovah, and do not go in. And you, naive sheep, you bleat and follow a God who is going to eat you. And you, son of Levi, quack. God peddler who sells the Lord by the ounce, innkeeper who stands men, God as a drink so that they will become tipsy and open their purses to you in their hearts. You rascal of rascals. And then you malicious, fanatical, headstrong ascetic. You look at your own face and manufacture a God who is malicious, fanatical, and headstrong. Then you prostrate yourself and worship him. Because he resembles you. And you, whose immortal soul opened a money-changing shop, you sit on the threshold, plunge your hand into the sack, give alms to the poor, lend to God. You keep a ledger and write, I gave so many florins for charity to so-and-so and such a day and, and such and such an hour. You leave instructions for a ledger to be put in your coffin so that you will be able to open it in front of God. Present your bill and collect the immortal millions. And you, liar, teller of tall tales, you trample all the Lord's commandments underfoot. You murder, steal, commit adultery, and afterward break into tears. Beat your breast, take down your guitar, and turn the sin into a song. Shrewd devil, 
You know very well that God pardons singers no matter what they do because he can simply die for a song. And you, Thomas, sharp ox goad in our rumps, and me, me, crazy irresponsible fool, I got a swelled head and left my wife and children in order to search for the Messiah. All of us together, devils, angels, imps, dwarfs, we're all needed in our great cause. After him, lads. He laughed, spit into his palms, and moved his big feet. After him, lads, he shouted again, and he started at a run down the slope leading to Nazareth. Mountains of men became smoke and disappeared. The sleeper's eyes filled with dreamless murk. Now at last he heard nothing. In the endless sleep, huge heavy feet stamping in the mountain and descending. His heart pounded wildly. His heart, a piercing cry deep within his bowels. They're coming. They're coming. Jumping up with a start. So it seemed to him in his sleep. He blockaded the door with his workbench and piled up his tools on top. His saw, jack, block planes, adzes, hammers, screwdrivers, and also a massive cross, which he was working on at the time. Then he sheathed himself again in the wood shavings and chips to wait. There was a strange, disquieting, calm, thick, suffocating. He heard nothing, not even the villagers breathing, much less God's. Everything, even the vigilant devil, had sunk into a dark, fathomless, dried-up well. Was this sleep or death? Immortality? God. The young man became terrified, saw the danger, tried with all his might to reach his drowning mind to save himself, and woke up. He was soaked with sweat. He remembered nothing from the dream. Only this. Someone was hunting him. Who? One? Many? Men? Devils he could not recall, he cocked his ear and listened. The village's respiration could be heard now in the quiet of the night. The breathing of many breasts, many souls, a dog barked mournfully, and from time to time a tree rustled in the wind. A mother at edge of the at the edge of the village lulled her child to sleep, slowly movingly, the night filled with murmurs and sighs which he knew and loved. The earth was speaking, God was speaking, and the young man grew calm. For a moment he had feared he remained all alone in the world. He heard his old father's gasps from the room where his parents slept, and was next to, which was next to his own. The unfortunate man could not sleep. He was contorting his mouth and laboriously opening and closing his lips in order in an effort to speak. For years he had been tormenting himself this way, struggling to admit a human sound. But he sat paralyzed on his bed, unable to control his tongue. He toiled, sweated, dribbled at the mouth, and now and then, after a terrible contest, he managed to put together one word, voicing each syllable separately, desperately. One word, only one, always the same. Adonai, Adonai, nothing else, only Adonai. And when he finished this entire word, 
He would remain tranquil for an hour or two until the struggle again gripped him and he began once more to open and close his mouth. It's my fault. My fault, murmured the young man, his eyes filling with tears. In the silence of the night, the son heard his father's anguish and he too, overcome with anguish, began involuntarily to sweat and open and close his lips. Shutting his eyes, he listened to what his father did so he could do the same. Together with the old man, he sighed, uttered desperate, inarticulate cries, and while doing so, he slept once more. But as soon as sleep came over him, again the house shook violently. The workbench toppled over. Tools and cross rolled to the floor. The door opened and the red beard towered in the threshold. Immense, laughing wildly, his arms spread wide. The young man cried out and awoke. So that's chapter one. Nikos Katzenzakis' Last Temptation of Christ. And just reflecting on something as I, as I, Consider and kind of outline um, a testimonial that I'm scheduled to give in April uh, with the official Godcast with that wonderful Ron Johnston. I think I'm actually going to be online with Punky as uh, Flightworks Mary let me know that in an email yesterday. Um, but as I look at this, uh, you know, I was yesterday even considering in that describing the how I learned when I was really little to recognize dreams and to attempt to take control of them uh, and to really trick myself or, or not necessarily trick myself, but try to ride the dream out and experience it and see where my mind goes with it and where God takes my unconscious. In any event, I'll wrap this up for now. I'd just like to finish with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, it's a very foggy day. It's been raining a little here on the snow here in upstate New York. And uh, have a blessed day. Wherever you are and what you're doing, know that Jesus Christ loves you. And I guess I do too. God bless. Bye for now. Hello, friends, brothers, sisters, children of God. Welcome to Jack the Bridge. Today, I'd like to read uh, some excerpts from Nikos Katzenzakis, The Last Temptation of Christ. I was first introduced to this book in uh, a course called The Introduction to New Testament, which I took in my freshman year of college down at uh, 
a small Presbyterian school in Western North Carolina. Uh, when this book, which was written in 1960, um, it is translated from the original Greek text. When it was first published, I'm sure it was a bit controversial, and it became more so when it was turned uh, into a movie. I want to say probably in 1986 or so, or 87, and the Catholic Church was really up in arms about it. And I remember having some pretty animated discussions with uh, people who were really just conditioned to react. And um, what I learned in reading this book uh, exposed me to a much greater range in my understanding of faith in general. Anyway, I'd like to get to this. So I'll start with this prologue uh, to give ample credit. This is published by Simon and Schuster, translated from the original Greek by P. A. B. N. The Last Temptation of Christ. Prologue. The dual substance of Christ, the yearning so human, so superhuman, of man to attain to God, or more exactly to return to God and identify himself with him, has always been a deep, inscrutable mystery to me. This nostalgia for God at once, so mysterious and so real, has opened in me large wounds and also large flowing springs. My principal anguish and all the source of all my joys and sorrows from my youth onward has been the incessant merciless battle between the spirit and the flesh. Within me are dark immemorial forces of the evil one, human and prehuman. Within me, too, are the luminous forces, human and prehuman of God. And my soul is the arena where these two armies have clashed and met. The anguish has been pretense intense. I loved my body and did not want to perish. I loved my soul and did not want it to decay. I have fought to reconcile these two primordial forces, which are so contrary to each other, to make them realize that they are not enemies, but rather fellow workers, so that they might rejoice in their harmony, and so that I might rejoice with them. Every man partakes in the divine nature in both his spirit and his flesh. That is why the mystery of Christ is not simply a mystery, for a particular creed. It is universal. The struggle between God and man breaks out in everyone, together with the longing for reconciliation. Most often this struggle is unconscious and short-lived. A weak soul does not have the endurance to resist the flesh for very long. It grows heavy, becomes flesh itself, 
and the contest ends. But among responsible men, men who keep their eyes riveted day and night upon the supreme duty, the conflict between fresh and spirit breaks out mercilessly and may last until death. The stronger the soul in the flesh, the more fruitful the struggle and the richer the final harmony. God does not love weak souls and flabby flesh. The spirit wants to have to wrestle with flesh, which is strong and full of resistance. It is a carnivorous bird which is incessantly hungry. It eats flesh by assimilating it, makes it disappear. Struggle between the flesh and the spirit, rebellion and resistance, reconciliation and submission, and finally, the supreme purpose of the struggle, union with God. This is what the ascent taken by Christ, the ascent which he invites us to take as well, following in his bloody tracks. This is the supreme duty of the man who struggles to set out for the lofty peak which Christ, the firstborn son of salvation, attained. How can we begin? If we are able to follow him, we must have a profound knowledge of his conflict. We must relive his anguish, his victory over the blossoming snares of the earth, his sacrifice of the great and small joys of men, and his ascent from sacrifice to sacrifice, exploit to exploit, to martyrdom summit, the cross." I never followed Christ's bloody journey to Golgotha with such terror. I never relived his life and passion with such intensity, such understanding and love, as during the days and nights when I wrote The Last Temptation of Christ. While setting down this confession of anguish and the great hope of mankind, I was so moved that my eyes filled with tears. I never felt the blood of Christ fall drop by drop into my heart with so much sweetness, so much pain. In order to mount to the cross, the summit of sacrifice, and to God, the summit of immateriality, Christ passed through all the stages which the man who struggles passes through. That is why his suffering is so familiar to us. That is why we share it, and why his final victory seems to us so much our own future victory. That part of Christ's nature, which was profoundly human, helps us to understand and love him, and to pursue his passion as though it were our own. If we had not within him this warm human element, he would never be able to touch our hearts with such assurance and tenderness. We would not be able, he would not be able to become a model for our lives. We struggle. We see him struggle also and we find strength. We see that we are not all alone in the world. He is fighting at our side. Every moment of Christ's life is a conflict and a victory. He conquered the invincible enhancement of the human pleasures. He conquered temptations, continually transubstantiated flesh into spirit and ascended. Reaching the summit of Golgotha, he mounted the cross. 
But even where his struggle did not end, temptation, the last temptation, was waiting for him upon the cross. Before the fainted eyes of the crucified of the spirit of the evil one, in an instantaneous flash, unfolded the deceptive vision of a calm and happy life. It seemed to Christ that he had taken the smooth, easy road of men. He had married and fathered children. People loved and respected him. Now an old man, he sat on the threshold of his house and smiled with satisfaction as he recalled the longings of his youth. How splendidly, how sensibly he acted in choosing the road of men. What insanity to have wanted to save the world. What joy to have escaped the privations, the tortures, and the cross. This was the last temptation which came in the space of a lightning flash to trouble the Savior's final moments. But all at once, Christ shook his head violently, opened his eyes, and saw. No, he was not a traitor. Glory be to God. He was not a deserter. He had accomplished the mission which the Lord had entrusted to him. He had not married, had not lived a happy life. He had reached the summit of sacrifice. He was nailed upon the cross. Content, he closed his eyes. And then there was a great triumphant cry, It is accomplished! In other words, I have accomplished my duty. I am being crucified. I did not fall into temptation. This book was written because I wanted to offer a supreme model to the man who struggles. I wanted to show him that he must not fear pain, temptation, or death. Because all three can be conquered. All three have been already been conquered. Christ suffered pain. And since then, pain has been sanctified. Temptation fought until the very last moment to lead him astray. And temptation was defeated. Christ died on the cross and at that instant death was vanquished forever. Every obstacle in his journey became a milestone and occasion for further triumph. We have a model in front of us now, a model who blazes our trail and gives us strength. This book is not a biography. It is the confession of every man who struggles. In the publishing, in publishing it, I have fulfilled my duty. The duty of a person who struggled much, was much embittered in his life and had many hopes. I'm certain that every free man who reads this book, so filled as it is with love, with more than ever before, better than ever before, love Christ. Nikos Katsanzakis.
Bye and bye. 